And today we are uh, in, um, in a passage called the Great White Throne Judgment, which is and can be, it can be in either a terrifying passage or a joyful passage, like a lot of these passages towards the end of Revelation are. And it all depends upon what your relationship is to Jesus. So let's listen uh, to the Great White Throne Judgment. It's only five verses, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a super important part of the book of Revelation, and it describes for us what happens at the end of history. So if you would, please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, uh, we pray you would be with us as we read through this this really terrifying passage, Lord. There are terrifying things being said here. And yet ultimately, as all, as everything in the book of Revelation, as we've been seeing, as we've been going through this, is that there's a message of hope for your saints, a message of hope in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that today, uh, as we go through this, as for anyone here listening, for anyone watching this later, uh, that we would see the utter foolishness of trusting in ourselves, the utter foolishness of placing ultimate value on this world Uh, and how reasonable and good uh, and beautiful it is to place our faith in Jesus. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Political phrases come in like fashion. They go out like cliches. They come and go. Over the last few years, there's been a phrase called that, uh, the right side of history that's been super popular with just about everybody. Presidents on both sides of the aisle, politicians on both sides of the aisle, people with every, you know, every conceivable cause have all made and staked their claim to being on the right side of history. And this isn't new. This has been going on literally for millennia. People have been doing this. Uh, And the basic idea is that that our ideals, our ethics, will eventually take over the world eventually, so you might as well join us and get on board right now. Not a new idea. One of my favorite examples of this, this came to mind as I was prepping this week, is, is a story that we learned about in seminary, one of the most bizarre, one of the more bizarre, uh, and, and awful stories that we learned in seminary about the Reformation itself. There was uh, something called the Munster 
Revolution or the Munster Rebellion. Munster is a town in Germany. Uh, and it started out, it started out with pretty good ideas. They really started wanting to take seriously the ideals in the Bible about caring for the poor and making sure that there was a distribution of wealth and that people were all taken care of. Uh, and they really wanted to expand God's kingdom and they were super zealous about it. And they were convinced, like most people at the time of the Reformation, that the end time was now, that the Pope was the Antichrist, the Roman Church was the beast, and Jesus was coming back any day. And so they, in, uh, you know, they wanted to put together their own king. They wanted to expand the kingdom of God and push out from Munster, Munster the town, into Europe and bring, uh, bring with them this new ideal, these new ideals and this new expression of the kingdom of God. Well, it wasn't good at first, but then, you know, unfortunately, as these things go, as soon as they got in the taste of power, then the, the leader decided that he was the rightful heir to the throne of David, and he set up a new Davidic kingdom. And then they decided that they should, there was, there was like a three to one ratio of women to men, so they decided that they should just, the people in power should just marry all the single gals, and the guy, the leader himself, married 16 girls, and then he put, and he put one of them to death for calling out his crazy, luxurious lifestyle. And then they decided to do away with trials and courts of law and just began to execute the people and, you know, what, for whatever crime they committed, usually for pointing their, you know, about the injustices of the leaders and the rulers. And at the end of the day, it just kind of got exposed. What they had done is what everybody does. They set, up, they set up their own little criminal kingdom. And at the end of the day, it just kind of got exposed that behind all these righteous ideals, it was really just about money and sex and power all along. And look, they're not, they weren't the first, and they ain't going to be the last. It's been happening forever. Rome, oh, Rome, the Mongols, the conquistadors, slave traders, Napoleon, the Nazis, the Soviets, Islam, socialism, so-called American progressivism, they all stake their claim to being on the right side of history, and when they're in their power, they are until the legitimate power shows up and they're not. And what's fascinating about these is they're all these, every one of those little examples are these little microcosms of the grand uh, collaborative human experiment of setting up our own little criminal kingdoms, uh, suppressing what we know to be true about God, in favor of what seems right to us as fallen creatures, and then necessarily experiencing all the consequences of sin and fallout and oppression that happen behind that. All, each one of those little examples is a microcosm of the big example of all human culture throughout time. And they all have one really simple thing in common. They suppress the truth we suppress the truth that we know about God in favor of what seems right to us and what seems right to us is contaminated with selfishness. And as such, uh, it does no one any good to be on the right side of history but then end up on the wrong side of eternity. And that's what we see happening here. There's coming a time 
when all of this stops. There's a day set on God's calendar when all of this ends. And that's what we're looking at today. This is it. This is it. This is the end. This is the end of that great human collaborative experiment. Uh, And everyone, everyone, everyone who rejected God in favor of their own, our own little criminal kingdoms, however big or however small they may be, are going to suddenly and shockingly wake up to the realization that we're on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of eternity. So the big idea of this passage is really this, is at the end of history, this is what, this is what we, get, we get out of it. This is what God wants us to see more than anything else, really, is at the end of history, there's only two options. You're either judged by what you've done or you're judged by what Jesus did. That's it. There's no middle ground. You're either going to be judged by what you did, what you've done, or judged by what Jesus did. So let's look at that one part of a time at the end of history. Uh, if you've got kids, you know that they often fight over, they fight, right? And often they fight over really stupid stuff. <laughs> Uh, or they fight, and often they'll, be, they'll, they'll sink into fighting really dirty about super stupid stuff that doesn't matter or won't last. I, I, our kids have literally gotten in a fight over a rock. Now, not really even a special rock. We have a backyard full of rocks, but this one rock, all of a sudden, everybody just got into this craze, and everybody had to have this one rock, and they were fighting over it and crying and screaming, and, and, and it wasn't even, you know, within a week, the rock had disappeared. No one could even recognize which rock it was that they were fighting for. <laughs> and they fought, and over, they fought and over worse things and sillier things than that, right? Things that don't even last. And it's not so much because they wanted that rock so bad, it's because... Uh, it's more a sense that uh, they just didn't want the other kid to have it, or they didn't want to feel like they had less than the other kid, even though they had plenty. It's just this weird thing that kind of overcomes kids. And kids, if you're listening to this, kids, uh, <laughs> you know, the silly, maybe even the sad part is that grown-ups do the same thing. We do all kind of fighting for stuff we don't really need, stuff we don't really even want. Uh, sometimes we just don't like to feel like other people have more than us, even if we have plenty. Uh, and it's all of this stuff that we fight for, all of this stuff that we end up even fighting dirty for, that is going to be, um, that is going to, all the stuff that's going to rust or fall apart or disintegrate or get lost. All of it is eventually going to disintegrate and disappear. <laughs> and in the, in the biggest sense of that, that's what we see happening here. Listen to what it says about everything in the world that we live in. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, for there was no place found for them. 
This is symbolic, right? But it's also, it is a picture of the dissolution of the physical world. That everything, everything that we, we hold to be so important and so, uh, so important in our lives is eventually going to disappear. It's all temporary. Peter, like, uh, tells us more about this in 2 Peter 3 where he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What word element, he means, it means like the basic building blocks of creation. We know a lot more about what those are, but what he's saying is that all of physical creation is going to fly apart and dissolve right in front of us. There's these fantastic passages in Colossians chapter one and Hebrews chapter one that talk about Jesus. One of the powers of Jesus is that he is holding all of creation together by the, world of his, by the word of his power. It means that it's, 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 a, it's saying that Jesus, one of the things Jesus does is he holds every electron that's circling around a nucleus in every atom, in every molecule, he's holding those elements together constantly by the word of his power. And there's going to come a day, not when God destroys or, uh, uh, the, the, the universe as we know it, as we see it, but Jesus is going to go, and everything is going to fly apart. And when that happens, There's not gonna be anything left. It's just the dead and God face to face. No more distractions, no more excuses, no more man-centered ethics, no more fresh ideas about God, no more clever hermeneutical arguments, no more delay. It's just the dead and God face to face. And that's a terrifying thought. Man, that's a terrifying thought. And what's so, I mean, what's so terrifying, what's so sad about it is it will become so suddenly and, uh, and, and terribly obvious that everything that people, that we held to be so valuable was really, was just temporary stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't as valuable as we thought. It came and gone. It didn't really mean anything, you know? I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to, 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 to think that you're like standing before God in judgment and you fought for something, you were on the wrong side, but it was meaningful. It, it's even worse to be standing in that position and, and knowing that you fought against God or that you, that you rejected God, that you rejected him, and the law, that you became a criminal and it was for nothing. You know, for, for unbelievers, it's just utter, utter, utter foolishness. And I was thinking about, you know, what does, this, what does this say for us? Is there anything that we can grab out of this? When I was, when I, I usually get to go over to China once a year. When I go to China, it's a 24-hour flight, right? So if you fly United, they have this thing called Polaris class, which is first class, like plus, plus, first class, which is you get this pod. If you walk through, you can kind of, you know, the peasants as we're heading for steerage, as we're making the right turn for steerage, you can look over your shoulder and kind of see these things up in first class. There's these, they're like these big pods 
that are faced diagonal down the plane, and in the pod there's like a television set, and there's a chair that like folds into a bed, uh, and there's just like all the amenities of home that are in this Polaris pod that you can buy for $5,000 for one, one way, one way. $5,000 one way to get to China. Now, I get, I get it, maybe if you're a high-powered executive, you go every week, maybe, you know, it gets, you need something like that. But for, for, for most people, my seat in the third, in third class, my seat costs 414 bucks, you know? And, but I'm still, I, you know, it, it's 24 hours. It's 24 hours that I'm sitting in that seat. And there's always that part of me that's like, man, I wish I was in that Polaris part. There's always that little part of me that, that starts to think about, mm, you know, maybe five grand, it's not that much. Yeah. And it made me think, like, do we do that in life? You know, how the third class seat is plenty comfortable for a 24-hour flight from here to China. In fact, it's amazing compared to how most of the world has ever traveled, right? Uh, and, you know, I heard somebody tell a story once about, you know, a long flight they took, and he asked the question, when you get in your seat and you sit down, you know, do you start, uh, do you start worrying about, you know, putting drapery over the window? Do you want to change the carpets out? Do you, like, redo the upholstery on your seat? Do you start remodeling? In your, and he's like, no, of course you don't. Why? Because you're going to get off the plane. Well, it's the same kind of idea. I, I think we can pull, I heard we can pull out of this is this, that we're on a flight, and it's short. And we're going to get off the plane. And so knowing that this world and everything we see in it, all the cars we have to have, the houses we need, all the stuff we need is all going to disintegrate. It's all temporary. Kind of helps us to reset our values on what's really important in life. Now, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be a shame if we got to the judgment and we look back and we realize that we spent a whole bunch of energy trying to get into that Polaris class and not much energy at all trying to help other people get into the kingdom. Uh, which is of ultimate importance because listen to what happens next. What happens next after the earth and sky fleet away and God or Jesus is shown on a great white throne Great is its power, white is its purity. The throne is what it means. It's a judgment throne. Kings would sit on thrones and judge people. And at that judgment, there's only two options from that point forward. You are either judged by what you've done or you're judged by what Jesus did. So let's look at the first option. The first option is you're judged by what you've done. Now, maybe that, sounds, maybe that sounds like a pretty good deal to you. Maybe you're like, all right, judged by what I've done. I mean, how bad could that be? I've done a lot of good stuff. I have a friend, uh, I had a friend, uh, Jim Houston, uh, was an elder at New Life, and Jim came down with a really rare, uh, rare form of, of um, bone marrow cancer. He was a weapons operator in, a, in an F-14 Tomcat, and a bunch of those guys bathed in radiation and come, came down with this weird bone cancer. And there was this experimental treatment 
that had like a 25% success rate. And he would, you know, and, and, and he said to his wife, he's like, when have I ever been on the bottom 25% of anything? You know, super successful guy. So maybe you're thinking that. You're like, all right. Okay, so 50%, I've got to get 51. My good works got to outweigh my bad works. Uh, maybe you're thinking that's a good deal. Well, it depends. It depends on what the standard is, right? Or it depends on what the percentage is or what level of perfection uh, or competency or whatever you have to attain. If it's like baseball, then you're sitting pretty good, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a baseball and you're a hitter and you hit a 350 average, that's amazing, right? If you have a season where you're batting 500, that means you only get a hit every other time. You're batting 500, you get a hit half the time. That's amazing. So if it's like baseball, you're pretty good, right? But what if it's not like baseball? What if it's more like Norwegian wingsuit flying? You know what I'm talking about? Those guys, they, they put, they, they have parachutes on their backs, but they have suits that have wings. They look like flying squirrels, and they go to these giant fjords in Norway, and they jump off these cliffs, and then they steer through uh, you know, the, these rock formations and rock arches where like, the, the level of precision is so tight, they just can't, they cannot mess up. They can't mess up, not even a little bit. If a Norwegian wingsuit flyer bats a 500, that's it. He's not coming home that day. And you can see these videos on YouTube of guys batting 500. Pretty awful. Well, when it comes to the game of life, it's actually even a little worse than that. At least there's a little bit of wiggle room in the flying suit. Listen, listen to what this says, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Oh, those books. What are those books? It's like stacks of books that are brought out. You know what the books are? The books are, are terrifying. They're, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, gives, I think, the best explanation of what these books are. Listen to what he says. This is, in my opinion, this is probably the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible or passage. This is what Paul says that these books are. Uh, Romans 2, 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness with them with their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Now let me, let me break that down real quick. What's happening, he's, he's describing something that's going to happen on that day. That day always means judgment day. And what he says, if you read it quick, you're like, oh, look, even Gentiles might have the law and we can do some good and we'll get to judgment day and we'll be all right. That's not what it's saying. 
It's saying that even Gentiles, even people who never heard the law, prove that they have a knowledge of what is right and wrong, and they, and they accuse themselves with their conflicting thoughts. And worse than that, every single thought, action, word, deed that, we're, that we ever have is all written down in these books. There is a DVR play in the, in the, in the, in the data vaults of heaven. There's a giant server room, and in that room are billions of DVR players, each one with somebody's name on it, and it's playing and it's recording every single thing, not just what you do, what you think, what you believe, how you press other people, everything, everything. And what, and, and what it says is, that's gonna be the evidence. You come before the judge, Jesus, and it's gonna be like this. It's gonna be like, well, Mr. Smith, not Herb, sorry, generic. <laughs> Mr. Smith, it, we show here that 784 times you, uh, you were tempted to tell a lie and you didn't do it, proving that you knew it was wrong. However, 7,642 times you actually did tell the lie, therefore, not only you're guilty, but you knew it was wrong and your own actions prove that you knew it was wrong and you're condemned. I mean, that's terrifying. Can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine being in that spot where everything that you've ever done or thought is projected up on a giant screen and, 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 and it says all the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed on that day. There is this terrible story. A pastor from Dallas, uh, I heard him tell once about a bivocational pastor who was making a presentation before the city council and he plugged his computer in and went to hit uh, the button to play the PowerPoint and instead he accidentally hit the wrong button and all of a sudden up on the screen started flashing all of these very illegal images and all he could do was sit there and lie. Everybody saw the secrets of his heart. It's kind of like that. It's terrible like that. You know, when one of the, one of the features of this scene is that there's no counter arguments. There's no arguing. There's no defense attorney. Uh, there's not any, there's, not any, there's a, not any defense made because there can be no defense made. It just says, uh, you know, there, it just says there's silence and, or there's tears or worse, there's gnashing of teeth, which means, it, it means you're so spitting mad and you hate God so much that you're just grinding your teeth with hatred against him. And that's how it's going to be on that day. Uh, and, and the bigger problem is that, you know, like we read in the law, it's not a 50, 51% thing. One sin, one sin condemns you. Now, we all know in reality, it ain't just one sin, right? So this is theoretical. But even just one sin condemns you. Why? 
I mean, it's, it's hard to explain this. God is holy. God, God, God cannot abide with or even, uh, there can't be any contamination of God with sin and unholiness. It just, it can't happen. Um, you know, what happens if you, you know, you put a, a little bit of contamination in a glass of water, the whole water, is, jar of water is contaminated and we are destined to be in God's presence and have fellowship with him and, and, and God cannot be cross-contaminated with evil or sin. It just cannot happen. Uh, his character, who he is in his being is absolute holiness and perfection. And there just cannot be, there cannot be sin in his presence. It can't happen. You know. I hate, I hate pagan funerals. I hate funerals of friends of mine that are unbelievers. Uh, and I, I've had, you know, a lot of them. Me and Pascal had a friend who was a guitar player for our band at one point, and he died of an overdose. And I remember we went to his wake, me and Pascal. Pascal was brand new Christian at the time, and I was like, not sure where he's at about hell, or, you know, right now. And, and we were talking about his drug addiction, uh, and Pascal looked at me and he goes, he chased it all the way into Sheol, didn't he? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. He chased it all the way into Sheol. You know, no one really knows what hell is like. Uh, the idea of fire, it's almost certainly expression of judgment. Other places in the Bible, it's talked about as outer darkness. Uh, we just don't know. We don't know. We just know you don't want to go there. It's beyond. It's more terrible than our minds can even understand. And so it's presented in picture form. That's why I hate, I hate pagan funerals because they always get to that point in the funeral where they say, at least he's gone off to be in a better place. And my heart just like cringes and so my whole inside just folded over on themselves because I think, no, no, he did not. No, she did not. And you can't say anything about it at somebody's funeral, you know? You just have to sit there and suffer with that knowledge of how terrible it is. You know? So maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, great. So even one sin and I'm condemned to this awful reality. And that seems like an impossible situation. In my first run-in with Christianity, that's, that's what happened to me. I didn't really understand, I did not understand the gospel. And I wanted to be a Christian, but I kept sinning. And and, and, and I would think to myself, what's the point of this? I can't stop singing, I, you know, I wanna be Christian, I totally believe this is true, and yet I keep falling into these patterns of sin, 
what am I supposed to do? It was, it was utterly despairing and psychologically tormenting because it seemed like there was no solution. There was no way out. And so what God had to do was he had to find a way to be with, to have fellowship with contaminated people. Somehow God had to figure out a way to purify us from the contamination of sin that we all carry around with us like a virus. And how did he do that? Last point. At the end of history, you can either be judged by what you've done, and I hope, to, I hope that you can see how futile that is, or you can be judged by what Jesus did. You can be judged by what Jesus did. Now, we are all, we're all expert Google immunologists by this point, right? We all have researched uh, and we know all about virus and transmissions and immunology and we all have our pet theories that confirm our pre-existing ideas, right? (laughs) We're all Google immunologists now, so we at least know the basics. We know what, what happens when you touch a contaminated surface. What happens when you touch contamination? What happens? You get contaminated, right? Contamination travels. But listen to what happens to Jesus when he touches contamination. This is something that, uh, it's just mind-blowing when you see this pattern in the Gospels. And I want to just take a minute and bring this up to the surface. This is a story from the beginning of Mark, uh, where Jesus heals all these sick people, including a bunch of lepers and people with contagious disease and whatnot. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him, Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick and with various diseases and cast out many demons. And then usually people stop there, but it goes on from there. And because of an unfortunate break in the text, we don't put these two things together. But it says, Jesus healed them all, and then rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. What, is, what do we see there, right? Jesus flips the script on immunology right off the bat. When diseased people, people with contagious diseases come to him and they touch him, Jesus doesn't get contaminated. What happens? Uh, he makes them holy. He cleanses them. They become clean. And then, and then that part that people usually miss, what happens that he, what does he do after having healed all the sick? Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. What is God, what is, this is all over the gospels and what is it trying to teach us? Well, who's supposed to be in the desolate place? The lepers, the diseased, the contaminated. They're supposed to stay outside the city gate in the desolate place, ringing their bells, unclean, unclean. And what just happened? Jesus didn't just cleanse them. Jesus touched them, and not only did he not get contaminated, but he purified and cleansed them of their sins. And then what happens after that? He goes out. He takes their contamination. 
He takes their place and he goes out to the desolate spot. It's teaching us over and over in these, these patterns in the New Testament and the Gospels that Jesus gives us his holiness and he takes our sin upon himself to the desolate place of death. And in that exchange, he purifies us. So listen, listen carefully. There's another book in this, right? Listen. And I saw the, great, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Who's written in that book? <laughs> Who's written in that book? The full title of the book we get earlier, it is the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Full title. Which means everyone who's Jesus is touched. All of us spiritually diseased people roaming around in the desolate places trying to cure our anxiety and depression and fear with temporary things that are going to disintegrate. All of us that Jesus has come down and touched. He traded places with us. He took our contamination, he took our sin, and then he took it with him to the desolate place of the, of the cross. And he put sin to death, and then he gives us his righteousness, and he purifies us. He purifies us. So what does that mean? You know, one of the big questions always, you know, people always ask is when we get to this passage is like, who's getting judged here? Is it Christians? Christians getting judged too? Is there like some awful scenario where you have to sit through the jumbotron and at the end of it, Jesus is like, canceled, next. Well, look, there are some there are passages that Paul says we must all face the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Maybe at some point, we're all gonna sit down and have a long talk with Jesus, <laughs> all right? But that's not what's being shown here. What, is, what do we already know when we come to this? What do we know from, uh, from last week? But we've already come to life. We've already gone through the first resurrection. And now we've gone into the second resurrection. And where are we positionally in this scene? We're seated. We're seated on the thrones with Jesus. What's our purpose here? What are we doing? We're judging. <laughs> And so there's nothing for us to fear in this text. That's the big takeaway, man. This isn't us being judged here. We are completely covered by Christ. We are with him as co-heirs of the new heavens and the new earth. The old creation is gone, and we're sitting with him as judges on the throne. This is Christ vindicating his people. There's no like judgment that we have to look forward to. There's no jumbotron for us. There's no fear or anxiety that we have to have about this at all. This is purely Jesus vindicating his church and us reigning with him forever. So wrapping that all up, at the end of history, there's only two options. 
You'll be judged by what you've done or you'll be judged by what Jesus did. And the sad part about this is that most people reject everything I just talked about in the last point. Most people reject the offer of salvation from Jesus because they're trying to chase after all the stuff from point one that's gonna fall apart. Uh, when we founded ResPres, we had three big sayings. We said we wanted to show the world that, um, that, that uh, Christianity was not only true, but it was beautiful. And we wanted to create a church that had unity and diversity. But we also, as a central tenet, we wanted to proclaim to the world that eternal life and joy was worth more, was more valuable than any temporary thing the world had to offer. And so for you know anyone who doesn't know Jesus, I hope to convince you of that. I hope this has convinced you of that somewhat. And for ourselves, let's try to remember, let's try to remember that and maybe spend a little less energy fighting for things in the world and a little more energy trying to persuade others to come into the beauty of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.